0: My question for you guys tonight is this. We're going, we're sort of going deep, a little deeper tonight. I've been trying to push that a little more this year, if I can say that. So some of you, I hope this doesn't make your eyes glaze over or put you to sleep. It shouldn't do that. But so my question is, have you ever felt like life is meaningless? Have you ever felt like, sort of like, what's the point? Uh, What's the point of all this? What is all of life really about? I go to school, it's just school, 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 day in and day out, school is so boring. I don't really like being at home. Um, What's the point? What's the meaning of life? What's the purpose of life? And I know we post questions like that a lot at Oasis, or I think we do, maybe too much, I hope not. Um, But I think you guys, I feel like you guys are at a really critical age as high schoolers to start to think about these deeper questions of meaning and purpose, and why are we here, and what is this life really all about, and is it all about just this? Is this all that there is, just the day-to-day this, and then we, we die, and we like return to dust? Um, what are we doing here? And um, for most of you, again, not to downgrade any of you that are like freshmen, but I think especially you upperclassmen, and freshmen, you can think deeply too. As you get into high school, you start to just you start to mature, and you start to go, I'm just, these questions start to pop into your mind. Um, you change a lot in high school. You mature a lot in high school. Seniors, you maybe go, wow, how am I a senior? Like, I feel like just yesterday, and uh, just did my senior year homecoming, and I'm, I'm going to graduate a semester even, maybe that's you. Um, we're diving into this new series tonight in this book in the Old Testament called Ecclesiastes. I'll explain why it's called that, what that word means, and so we even sort of titled it Life Without Jesus, and you'll pick up very, very quickly on why that is, but this is a very um, sort of different book in the Bible, and I'm so excited to dive into it. We're going to do at least three weeks on it, um, so next week, and we have that worship night um, on October 18th, we'll do one more week after that, and we might even go a little longer, it depends, I haven't totally landed the plane, but... If you have a Bible or Bible app, I'd love for you to turn there. I'd love for you to find out where Ecclesiastes is. I'm going to give you some homework tonight at the end that I'm sure you're like, I hate homework, so you don't. I'm not going to quiz you on it next week, but I am going to give you some homework. I'd love for you to know where this book is in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one on the Bible carts. If you don't want to get up, you can pull out your iPhone. If you have a smartphone or iPhone, open the Bible app. I'm going to read just the first three verses. So this is Old Testament. Feel free to use your table of contents if you need to. If This is after Proverbs and Psalms, but uh, before Isaiah, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1, three verses. It'll be on the screens as well. So, it says this, the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? I'm going to stop there. So, what did you guys learn tonight at church? If your mom asks you that on the way home, you need to go, I learned that life is meaningless. (laughs) That's what Brad talked about tonight. Utterly meaningless, mom. Everything's meaningless. That's what I learned tonight. I don't know if your parents asked you that on the way home. Mine always did. Uh, wow. Has anybody ever read the book of Ecclesiastes before? Some of you have expected that. Whole th- at least first chapter. First couple chapters are so, um, like, wow. Uh, but not a lot of you. Um, so it's just like, what is this book even doing in the Bible? Like, why is this book in here? And what is it about? And it's short, It's probably only eight pages in my Bible, I think. Um, Twelve chapters, Um, and in fact, these first three verses are really a pretty concise summary of the entire book. If you just read what we just read, you sort of get a glimpse into what he's, what the theme of the book is. It's very odd, though, isn't it? Why, like, it just seems so bleak and pointless. I want to point out tonight. um, There's key. There's three key phrases that we're going to focus on this week and next week. And tonight is really primarily an introduction. So much of this, we're just going to sort of focus on the themes of Ecclesiastes, but a lot of the, there's just a lot of introduction. There's a lot of explaining, like, why why is he so negative? What's going on here? Um, Next week, we'll talk about who wrote the book. But three key phrases that are just in these first three uh, verses. First of all, meaningless, certainly. We got a highlight. So that's used four times or so, I think, just in the first three verses. Um, Secondly, under the sun. Under the sun is repeated almost 30 times in this book. And then the third one is just that word gain. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil? So much of the book is like trying to get out. What's the point? We're all about gaining. We just, we won't gain. And so what's, what's with that? So why is this book in the Bible? Why are we studying it? This is one of the most beautiful and most profound and most dark books in all of Scripture. It really is negative. I've already said that so many of the books in the Bible have a positive function. Um, So many of the books in the Old Testament, first of all, are sort of the law, but then there's the prophets. They're sort of describing um, who God is. We sort of learn about God's character, His nature, His love for His people. We learned a lot about Israel. The prophets were sort of God's mouthpiece. New Testament, they're all letters, right? Letters. I mean, are the four accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus, but then letters from Paul and letters from James or John or Peter telling us positive things about how do we live the Christian life? How does the gospel change everything? But obviously, as I've said, Ecclesiastes has a much more negative function. It's sort of trying to deconstruct much of what you and I know and feel about the way life works or the way life should work, and somewhat to reduce us to our knees by the end. Um, I don't know if many of you are negative by just nature, your personality. I like to try to be a positive person, and yet, man, I'm telling you, when I discovered this book as a junior in high school, it was incredible. Like, it was like somebody was reading my mail. It was like a, a breath of fresh air for me, and I just thought, wow, this is in the Bible. This is stuff that I'm like, I'm really questioning. Like, what are we doing here? What is the point of this life. Um, And so here's the point, really. We want the good news of Christianity to, in fact, be good news to you. And I think here's where, I don't know if this is a problem, but the issue for us is this, that most of us, we've been taught by our life circumstances that contentment in this life um, seems possible, but we can't grasp it, right? Contentment and happiness seems like, it seems possible, at least in America, like, there's just so much stuff out there that brings happiness or joy or pleasure, and it seems like it, we could grasp it, but we can't. We just, we try things, um, we go after things, and so we spend much of our waking hours pursuing deeper levels of happiness and fulfillment and contentment, don't we? I don't know if you were here, like, you remember two weeks ago I ended, I was talking about worship, and I threw this C.S. Lewis quote on the screen and, um, about desire, and we all have different desires, but do you remember this? He basically was saying if we have a desire that nothing on this earth seems to fulfill, seems to satisfy, like maybe the point is not that life is just false or fake or whatever, but maybe the point is we were made for another world. Maybe we were made for something more. Maybe God put that in us. Um, the author of Ecclesiastes sort of enters into this struggle, but it gets, it's, he's sort of negative. And again, this is this, you know, we've sort of subtitled this series Life Without Jesus or Life Without God. He gets to God. Um, He's certainly, this is Old Testament, so this is prior to Jesus coming. This is prior to the cross. But he's trying to figure out what is life really all about. Pastor Tim Mackey is um, a pastor, was a pastor. Maybe you've heard of this thing called the Bible Project. And uh, so, he, as I was reading commentaries, I listened to some of, of Tim Mackey, and he was really helpful in my study of Ecclesiastes over the past couple weeks, but he brings up this idea that Ecclesiastes is confronting, and he calls it the myth of religious fulfillment. The myth of religious fulfillment, and I want to tell you about it. Here's the basic idea, and this is very, very common, of course, in religious circles. We don't want to be about religion here. Um... Christianity, certainly by all accounts, is a major world religion. If you're new to Oasis, if you're a guest tonight, I, from the get-go, want to distinguish like religion versus a relationship with Jesus. And over and over again, the Bible even does not tout religion. Rules, just moralism, anti-religion, I want you guys to know from there that there is an, an absolute difference between religion and the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Christianity. Um, so, don't just think that when you come to Oasis, you're getting religion. I don't want you to get religion. Religion has hurt a lot of people or left a lot of people broken and empty and angry and, or, or worse. Um, but if you have a relationship with the living God, with the Creator, that is incredible. And that's what we want you to get. But he saw it's the myth of religious fulfillment. And um, so, if you've grown up in church, if you were raised in church like I was, you probably fall into this. And, and I do. Um, it basically says this. So, it could be any religion… This could work for Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism. For Christianity, it's like I get it. I get Christianity. I buy into the ways of Jesus. I've heard it all before. I know the gospel. Brad, you'd say I've got the gospel coming out my ears because I have grown up. I was born in this church or in a church. I've gone to church my whole life, basically every Sunday. I get it. I've done the Jesus thing, and the reason I do this. The reason that I believe in God and in Jesus in the Bible is not strictly because my parents raised me to be a Christian, although they did, that's a good thing. The reason I believe in God is because I feel like my life is enhanced because of it. I feel like my life is made better because of my faith in God. I hope at least to get something out of it. In other words, Jesus makes my life better and it's like all kinds of other things. That's why you lift weights, fellas, or you do yoga. or You, you don't do a lot of things. You don't do something unless you get something out of it. And certainly in America today, that's what we want, right? We, we, we almost don't do anything unless there's results. We want results. We do think, I mean, think of any marketing campaign out there. Why? I, I actually really prefer to drink Dasani over other bottled water. You know why? I don't know why. I'm serious, though. I really like... I like Coca-Cola. I want to support Coca-Cola. I don't know. I like Coke over Pepsi. Um, Why? Because I think this is better water. It even says enhanced on the front. It's enhanced with minerals. We want our life to get better. We choose certain things over other things. And so we want our lives to be enhanced. We want results. And so the myth of religious fulfillment says God's role in my life is basically to make my life better so that I don't have as many problems, so that I can be happy, as we said, more content, more successful, so that I can live a happier life. That's the myth of religious fulfillment. And I think most of us in here can relate to that at some degree. That's the way we think. The problem is this. The problem is that I called it a myth, or Tim Mackey did. And we go, why is that a myth? Because I thought that was sort of the whole point. See, we all have expectations about what we hope God is up to in our lives. We all have expectations about what we think God is going to do for us. And certainly, I don't, I mean, this is so hard, you guys, like, we all to the core, we really do go, I think life with God is better than life without it. And I would certainly say, yes, that's absolutely true, at least inwardly. But I think a lot of times outwardly, we secretly sort of buy into this um, wealth, health, wealth, prosperity sort of gospel. And so, we get very confused when something terrible happens in our lives. We get very um, angry or jaded when God doesn't show up in our life the way we expect Him to show up in our life. And maybe it's not even this terrible tragedy, but we just want to, like, hear from God. I want to hear God speak. Why does God speak to my friend and He doesn't speak to me? And honestly, we get a little, like, frustrated about that. Um, Or even hearing about tragedies makes us sad and angry and confused. So, this shooting happened Sunday night. I mean, woke up, was that Sunday night? Yeah, Sunday night. Like the worst shooting in American history. They were just at a concert. Like, and something in us just, I mean, we live far away from Las Vegas. But we just go, wow, like another shooting. What is going on in our nation? Or what is going on in this guy? What causes people to snap like that? Why, God? And if you could have done something about that, why didn't you? And even being so far removed from it, and it wasn't like our parents were there, or you know, I don't know that there was any connection to Omaha. We just go, what is going on? And so we even hear about tragedies, and um, we just we're disappointed, and we go, God, I I thought you could do something. We have expectations about life. Many of you, you had expectations, for example, when you were in middle school, about what high school would be like, and you maybe thought high school, like, oh man, when I get to high school, it's going to be so incredible, homecoming and prom and oh my goodness, and now you're all in high school, probably more so, I mean, you freshmen are still like, oh now yes, I'm a freshman, I'm in high school, but when I'm a senior, like then it's going to be awesome. And the seniors in here tonight could tell you, like, just my expectations were sort of shattered, probably. Maybe I'm wrong. But for most of you, you go, it's just not what I thought it would be as a middle schooler. I thought high school would be different. Many times we don't even realize, you guys, the expectations we carry into things until something crazy happens and our expectations are shattered all over the floor. And we go, oh, I really, I wanted more from that experience or from doing this or whatever, and it didn't satisfy. My point is we all fall into the myth of religious fulfillment to some degree. We just buy into that, and it happens in life, it happens in our families, it happens in our schools, and it certainly happens in our spiritual lives and our spiritual journeys as well. Why do I want God in my life? How would you answer that question? Why do you want God in your life? Why am I doing this Jesus thing anyway? we, you guys, we hope to get something out of it, right? I mean, we really hope that there is some sort of improvement. We really, I mean, we really should believe that. That makes sense. And yet we know that when crazy things happen, our expectation we're let down. We're, we realize it's, it's typically when we're let down that we realize we had such high expectations because, oh, that's, why am I feeling this way? Oh, I really was hoping, I had expectations about this or that or what God might do. And when they aren't met, we're disappointed. The book of Ecclesiastes, you guys, is going to raise another option. It's going to raise the possibility that what if God's not the problem? What if our expectations are actually the problem? What if it's really not like God's fault? And it's so easy to blame God, and we do it all the time, but what if our expectations of the problem, what if we've even been tricked, perhaps because of the sinfulness and the evil and the wickedness in our own hearts, perhaps because of the effects of sin on our culture and society, that we've been tricked into believing that life should never, ever be hard or should never, ever be difficult and that just life should go fairly well because for most of us it does because we, we live in Omaha, Nebraska and just bad things haven't Happen against some, you know, maybe your parents have divorced or your family's been broken apart, but I tell you what, when the Zambians were here from Africa, we like helped build this orphanage in Zambia. When they were here, whatever, a month, two months ago, they don't expect life to be easy in Africa. It's starting to get that way with, you know, electricity is coming in and they have, oh, suddenly we don't have a dirt floor anymore. But like life is just They don't expect, I mean, when Jack Archer was there for three months, these people would have babies and the baby would die. Something would happen in the first week, you know, and it would die. But when they buried the kid, it was like the third kid they buried. It would be absolutely like heartbreaking for us. And it was heartbreaking for them, don't get me wrong. But we're just accustomed to life going easy. What if we've just sort of been tricked in believing that life should be easy. And what if what I thought was Christianity was actually just the myth of religious fulfillment? And that's not even actually what Christianity is supposed to be. And so, I'm sort of jaded right now because of what I was hoping God was going to do in my life, but that's not even really the point. And what if I thought Christianity was supposed to make my life better and make me successful and bring me results? But again, that's not actually the point. And so, One of the themes of Ecclesiastes is it's going to confront all of our misconceptions that we have concerning our expectations about life, especially when life is me-centered and not God-centered. So that's why it's called Life Without Jesus to some degree. Some of you are going to be deeply disturbed that a book like this is even in the Bible. I sort of referred to that. I mean, if you read all of chapter 1 and 2, Some of you might go, wow, this is really dark. Others of you, I think, will really find that Ecclesiastes is a breath of fresh air. And you might go, I really love just that this brings up the struggle and some of the doubts that I face when it comes to life. So, the writer of Ecclesiastes wants to take an honest look at the human experience under the sun. So, that whole, like, gain thing, man, that's what I just talked about, the enhanced, we want results, we want life to be enhanced, we want gain. But his whole theme is looking at life just under the sun. What if we factored God out of life? What if all we had was just this here and now? Remember the beginning of the last series, Kesselon talked about a secular worldview. is just this world, and that's all there is. He wants to take an honest look at that, and, um, and he sort of lays out a bunch of different thought experiments about what the point of life is. Tonight, before we wrap up, I want to w- jump back into the text for just a little bit and I want to look at the one key word that's repeated over and over again. It's the word meaningless. Um, meaningless. Or in some of your translations, maybe you are at home, your parents love the like ESV Bible or the New King James, um, NASB. A lot of traditional translations use the, use the word vanity. It says vanity, vanity, everything is vanity or vanity of vanities. Um, that word is, again, traditionally... Used, but a lot of times I don't know. You guys don't call this any—you don't call it a vanity anymore. Your mom or your grandma, like the vanity, was what you sat down on to put put your makeup on, right? It's a vanity. Or to some of us, it means like being proud. Like I'm just so vain, but that doesn't exactly capture it. Meaningless too, I think, has been used for a long time. But in so many like uh, commentaries that I read and talks I listened to, they all brought this up that there's this Hebrew word being used here. In meaningless is sort of the best word that captures the whole range of uses of this Hebrew word, but it doesn't, it's just, um, it doesn't exactly work all that well. So, here's, the Hebrew word is this word um, hevel or hevel. I don't know how you say it with a Hebrew, hevel. Um, It looks like hebel, but it's pronounced hevel. And um, it's used two different ways. Maybe you've heard this before. The first and the primary way it's used is as a metaphor. The, the Hebrew word literally means a vapor or like smoke. It's here for a second. I mean, picture your, uh, you walk outside on a really cold day, and you breathe out, right? And you can see your breath. That's Hevel. Hevel. He, he says it's it's meaningless. It's there. It's real. But it literally means vapor or smoke. It's just a breath. It's there for just a second, but then it's gone. So that word in this uh, meaning is sort of bringing it's fleeting. It's fleeting, right? It's, it's here, but only for a second. All of life is just so it's short. It's gone in a heartbeat. We have maybe 70, 80 years in this life, and then we're gone. Um, it doesn't last. It's here for a moment, it's gone. That's one use of the word. The second way it's used is a little more profound, and it's used this way, I think, a little less often. But it's not used as if that has no meaning. Um, it's more referring to, like, that's a, that's a paradox. Like, that's not the way things should normally work. So, for example, uh, in chapter 8, maybe I'll just read it here if I have time. Chapter 8, end of chapter 8, the writer, the teacher says this, Here's something else meaningless that occurs on earth. But, of course, it doesn't mean this has no meaning. He says this, the righteous who get what the wicked deserve and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. He goes, that's Hevel. That's meaningless. Well, he's not saying it has no meaning, but his, his point is it's a paradox. It's an enigma. That's not the way life is supposed to work. Um, Ecclesiastes is one of the three uh, books in the wisdom literature. The main books in, in the wisdom literature in the Bible are Ecclesiastes, Job, and Proverbs. Proverbs all over the place talks about the way life should normally work. This is the way that life tends to occur. The righteous maybe have a long, long life and live to full health and they're great, and the wicked are snuffed out. But Ecclesiastes brings up this different perspective that what happens when the righteous live, have a bunch of kids, but they all die, and the righteous person dies young? And this wicked, evil person lives long life. That, he goes, that's hevel. Like, that's it's just a paradox. It's it's an enigma. It's sort of absurd. And so the writer does all of these thought experiments about how messed up life is under the sun, about how life just sometimes doesn't go. Most of the time it goes that way, but sometimes it doesn't go the way we expect it to go. And so it's fleeting, it's a paradox. I think maybe a better word that we would use in today's language and I don't mean to sometimes remember a student said to me once, "I hate it when a teacher says, the writer of the Bible, you know, translated it this way, but I think we should use the word, like, do I know what I'm talking about? Well, not as much as the people who translate Hebrew to English. But I'm telling you, I've listened to so many commentaries that just say, meaningless does not quite get, it's not like the best, doesn't get at the root of what that word hevel really means. And so even, I mean, this one guy said, uh, he uses the word absurd, um, maybe a better word is empty, empty, empty. Like, everything is empty. You know, maybe it's your friends that live for the here and now, and maybe you have friends that, like, live for the party every weekend. I just go, at a certain point, the weekend ends, and the high, like, fades away, and you wake up in the morning, and you're hungover. I just go, like, isn't that empty? There's probably, like, an emptiness there that we're just trying to fill. Isn't that probably the case with your friends, or maybe that's you? I think we don't just need to talk about sin being, like, wrong, but I think we need to talk about sin is just empty a lot of times. Um, the teacher's trying to get us to see that all of life is Hevel if God is factored out of the equation. There's more to life than just the here and now. So as we already said, even if God is in the equation, if, it's, if, if we buy into the myth of religious fulfillment and all of life is me-centered and not God-centered you guys, that's sort of our default mode. Look for that in your life. If when tragedy happens or the slightest disappointment, you sort of get mad at God, it's probably not God's fault. It's probably our expectations. He says, everything is heaven. So, to some of you, like as we dive into this book, you're maybe going to be super confused. Others of you, this is a breath of fresh air. So, Ecclesiastes, the writer, and next week I'm going to go into who wrote this book. In fact, I want you to maybe dive into this book a little, and there's someone that you're going to think is probably the writer, but did they really write the book? But they're pointing out the struggle of human existence. And the myth of religious fulfillment tries to make everything very black and white, very karma-esque. How many of you guys, your friends, just totally buy into karma? So what we think is, if I do this and live, live this way, X, Y, and Z, then God is going to do His thing, and He's going to do X, Y, and Z to bless me and to make my life better. We just, by default, slip into karma mode. And if bad things happen to me, oh, it's because I did that, whatever, a year ago or a month ago. I literally sat with a guy in the hospital a year ago who was on uh, dialysis, kidneys were failing, thought he might die, and he goes, I mean, he was just like, Brad, what what did I do to cause this? God is angry at me. And um, I go, uh, I'm blanking on the guy's name right now. I just go, especially like this side of the cross, there is no like tit for tat in the gospel. Like if I did this a year ago, God's punishing. There is none of that. If you guys ever think that, the cross completely eliminates that for the Christian. That Jesus bore all of like the sin and corruption and ugliness of your heart and your behavior. Um, He took that on the cross for you. So don't don't ever think that God is punishing you. Um, Now, God might be trying to teach you something, and there's places in the Bible that's, you know, but but it's not, it's not, um, it's not retribution. Jesus took retribution on the cross for you. But so, I I just feel like we we come across life experiences, and we're let down, and we begin to think, maybe God's not real, and I'm going to chuck my whole faith. Some of you have been tempted to do that, and that's an option, but I don't think it's the best one. Or you go, okay, God's maybe real. I'm not going to chuck my belief in God. I don't know how else we, we got here, who started, anyway, all that stuff. But maybe you go, God can't care about me. He just doesn't, I just don't believe He actually cares about my life. He seems very disconnected to my life. And it's not true, but here's the, Ecclesiastes just creates this space, comes into the middle of all of that, and says, what if God's promise to me is actually not to solve all of my problems? Because, guys, God didn't—he never promises in the Bible to make your life better and to make all your dreams come true. In fact, at least at one point, Jesus says, in this life, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus enters into the hevel, just the, the messiness, the sin. He, he enters into the hevel of life's of life, and sort of took it in himself on the cross and bore it for you and for me. The writer of Ecclesiastes, he doesn't know about Jesus yet, right? He's like prior to the cross. Now, he brings up God eventually, and it's great that he sort of gets there. So, it doesn't end totally like bleak and negative in Ecclesiastes, but Jesus enters into the meaninglessness of life, and he takes it. So, what if you and I are left in this position of great humility, where we just go, I'm not in control of my life, and I have to let go, and I want control so badly, and I know you guys do. I want, you want control of your life. And Jesus says, you just, you aren't, we're not going to be able to grasp totally the meaning of life under the sun. And it doesn't mean, though, that there is no meaning. Um Just because I can't make sense of life right now doesn't mean that there's no sense in life. So tonight, as we close, will you still trust that there is a God in heaven who created you, who knit you together in your mother's womb, who loves you tremendously, who knows you inside and out? Because he's just that big, and he's that powerful, and he's that good.